we're just going to keep talking about the supply chain in Spa Retailer Magazine and here on the podcast. It is an unavoidable subject in our industry and in the world right now. I know more than I've ever needed to know about where we get the stuff to make the other stuff in this last year. I find it all fascinating, but wish I didn't have to learn about it because of massive shortages. We referenced this in the podcast, but I just wanted to read a snippet of this March 18th article from the Wall Street Journal called Everywhere You Look, the Global Supply Chain is a Mess. Supply chain woes mounted worldwide for makers of everything from cars and clothing to home siding and medical needle containers as the extreme Texas weather and port backlogs compounded problems for manufacturers already beset by pandemic disruptions. Toyota, Honda, and Samsung were the latest multinational companies to chime in about setbacks, with the two automakers saying Wednesday they would halt production at plants in North America. Toyota cited a shortage of petrochemicals, manufacturing of which has been hobbled by last month's Texas freeze. Honda pointed to a combination of port issues, the semiconductor shortage, pandemic-related problems, and the crippling U.S. weather. The disruptions underscore how several forces are coming together to squeeze the world's supply chains, from the pandemic-driven rise in consumer demand for tech goods to a backlog of imports at clogged California ports to U.S. factory outages caused by weather woes. They are creating cost increases and delays for numerous industries, company executives and analysts say, affecting profit margins and the prices that companies and consumers ultimately pay for many goods. So we are taking an in-depth look at what's going on in the plastics industry on the podcast today and what that means for your hot tub retail store. I think I can safely be the voice for all hot tub OEMs right now when I say, retailers, be patient. It's not our fault. Hope you enjoy. This is the Spa Retailer Podcast, where we talk retail, business, and all things related to the hot tub industry. I'm your host, Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. Well, today on the Spa Retailer Podcast, I have Bob Confer, the president of Confer Plastics. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Bob. So we talked, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, we chatted about the plastics industry and the shortages that you guys are seeing. And, and after that conversation, I thought, you know, we really should have him on to talk a little bit more in depth about this. I'm guilty of it. Consumers are and everyone in businesses, we take supply chains for granted. We expect something to be delivered, to be delivered on time and to always be available and to be inexpensive, but things change dramatically sometimes. And this is one of those times. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just, it's not one, it's not one industry. It's not one product. It's not one category. It's, it's just kind of everything it seems like. But before we get too much into the topic at hand, I wanted to go over your kind of personal background and how you got into the the industry and got into the plastics industry. So Confer is located in New York. Have you always lived in New York? Is that where you grew up? Yep. I grew up in uh, Gasport, New York, which is the other side of Niagara County from the workplace. And it's uh, a nice 35-minute commute, which allows me to 
about the day that's coming before me and then reflect on the day that was. So it, it's nice country driving that gives me a lot of free time to think. <laughs> that can be good or bad, depending on the day. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so how did the how did the company get started? I know just from doing my own research and knowing you guys from the industry that I think your dad started it, right? My grandfather and oh, father grandfather. Both. Okay. And uh, it was the third go around for my grandfather. And he got into the plastics industry just a little bit after World War II. He had been working for a company called Norton Labs, which no longer exists. They were in Lockport, New York, right on the Erie Canal. And they had been making injection molded handles for silverware and pots and pans back in the 40s and 50s. And he saw an opportunity of going beyond injection molding and getting into blow molding and applying it to industrial and consumer products. When in the past, blow molding was always bottles and, and things like that. But Norton Labs wanted nothing to do with that. So he said, you know what? I'm going to go out on my own, open up a laboratory for which I can experiment with. So he got hooked up with a fellow named Pete Sherman. They opened up a company called Air Mold in the early 1960s, and they developed some of the things that we take for granted in blow molding, some of the process and some of the items like the living hinge that everyone will find on toolboxes, tackle boxes, any sort of case, even takeout containers. That was formulated by my grandfather, and that appears in so many products nowadays. He had sold off the patent to R.W. Grace, and it's hit and miss when you look at what it could have meant to us. Sure, we're not making billions of toolboxes and tackle boxes, but at the same time, now we're making a lot of fun things. It's a lot more fun to say I'm getting people in the water and on the water. So that's kind of a good contrast there. So they had dabbled in experimentation for a couple of years. And then my grandfather decided to open up a company called Airlock Plastics, located in Tonawanda next to the uh, city of Buffalo. And that company got into custom blow molding. And then he brought on some partners because he wanted to expand the business a little bit. The partner then voted him out of his own business. So that ended up being a, a major sticking point for him when he left there. They said, take your little machine and leave. And, and we still have that little machine right here. The machine was made in 1957, but really, we treat that machine well. And it, we look at it as kind of like the same way that someone would treat a pet or a human being. If you love that, it'll love you back. So that's the way it is with this machine is we've given it all the TLC throughout the years, and it's been nothing but good for us. So he took that little machine, opened up Confer Plastics, and he did it under the name of Confer rather than the previous two versions where he had partners because the way he would look at it is allegedly family would never screw you over. So they haven't. We've been doing well as a family and, and growing the business. And that was back in 1973. And my father was fresh out of college. He had gone to Alfred University. They opened up the business in what used to be the Roblin Steel Plant over here in North Tonawanda. They constantly expanded throughout the years. We got out of the Roblin Steel Plant in 1986 and got a facility. And it was perfect timing because six months after that happened, Roblin Steel burned down. Oh, no. <laughs> Had we been there, we would have lost everything. So oh, it was man. perfect timing. And we've expanded uh, quite a few times, adding larger machines, many machines, and adding a uh, distribution center and adding on to this building multiple times. And I would say that our claim to fame across the multiple expansions is go big or go home. So we're making what would be to most blow molders very large products. Typically, a blow molder that's dealing with products like we are that are not bottles or milk jugs, things like that, they're going to be looking at a part that weighs about 20 pounds to 30 pounds as being a large part. 
-hmm. To us, that might be a small part. We've got machines that can drop 150 pounds of plastic in one shot. We're making kayaks on that machine, but we're making a wide variety of uh, swimming pool and spa products. We started making swimming pool ladders back in the 1970s for a company called Sun Chemical. And my grandfather decided, you know what? They're not moving the ladders too well. Let's see what we can do on our own. So it's kind of a weird niche to be in, but it works out well for us. It got us into the spa industry. And we got into that in the early 1990s, making steps for getting people into spas, hot tubs. And uh, we've expanded multiple times in that product line where we're making spa pads upon which people can set their hot tubs. And we're making larger step systems. And now we're servicing multiple OEMs with the cabinetry that goes on the hot tub. I remember a few years ago at the show, I think the top product that I saw on the floor that year was you guys were making replacement panels for old hot tubs. And so a retailer who got an old spot in and, you know, a lot of people take old hot tubs in on trade could spruce it up pretty effectively and cost efficiently. And it was, it was funny because it was in on the hot tub side of the, of the trade show, it was the talk of the floor. <laughs> It's a good business for us to have that ability now because we've taken that same sort of panel and allowed end consumer to dress up their hot tub. We've gotten a lot of calls from people who say, you know what, I've gotten 20 years out of it. And it looks like it's been out in the environment for 20 years. So I need to peel the wood off, peel off the extruded plastic. I need to add your stuff. So it's helped people reinvest to make everything better. The supply chain is kind of the main thing that we wanted to talk about today, but I feel like I need a little bit of an education just on how plastic products are made. I mean, that is kind of the the crux of it, right? Is that you get raw materials from somewhere in order to make your products. And, you know, along that line, there have been some, some pretty significant failures recently. So can you kind of talk me through what you need to make the plastic products that you guys produce and how that kind of comes together? 99% of the material that we use is high-density polyethylene, which is the same material that would be a milk jug, except we fortify it with some UV protection, some colorant, thicker walls, things like that. And that all comes from basically the Gulf of Mexico. 80 to 85% of North American need comes from there. And that harkens back to the old day when plastic was produced for oil and they were getting it from the ocean. So they build all these petrochemical complexes around the Gulf. So got the Gulf, we've got Texas, places like that that are end up the producers. But it changed over time where all the plastic that we use now is made by natural gas. So through fracking and things like that, they end up shipping all that natural gas down to Texas, maybe pulling some of it around the ground in Texas. And from there, it goes through a unique process within a reactor where they're using steam and heat to crack those molecules that are in that gas. Then they cause it to go from that gaseous state to almost a liquid phase, and then it becomes solid. And it's just taking all the chains of the molecules and changing the polymers to make hard material from something that was gaseous. From there, it gets uh, sent in rail cars throughout the whole United States, going from rail cars directly to some factories. Ours goes to a rail hub. And then from that rail hub, tractor trailers will go pick it up and then deliver it to our facility. And these are tiny little beads. They're incredibly small. They're much bigger than what people might hear about in the news being microbeads. These things are about the size of, say, the end of an eraser at the end of a pencil. They will be processed in our plant at about 420 to 430 degrees to make something that's like a molten magna of plastic. And we stretch that out of the machine and it comes out in a hollow tube that we then fill up with air, which is 
why it's called blow molding. Where injection molding, which is a different sort of plastic process, they would extrude just a thick mess of plastic and then squeeze it and use hydraulic pressure to do that. But ours is blow molding because we're using air to fill that. So even though it seems like when someone talks about that sort of technology, which is the same used on a bottle, that the products might all be hollow, they're not necessarily hollow all the way. When it comes to industrial blow molding like we do, we cause the walls of the part to touch. So it would be, imagine collapsing a bottle upon itself and pinching off the sides of the bottle to touch each other. Those are called kiss-offs and tack-offs. And those are what give our products rigidity. Say when it comes to uh, a spa step, you want to make sure that it can hold the weight of one or two human beings. So we don't want any deflection or hollow to that. So these kiss-offs give it plenty of strength. And what we use as a fine example for that is look at the spa pads we make. When you take a hot tub that's full of water, I think about all that weight in there and just the equipment itself and our hot tub spa pad is holding that. There's no deflection to it and it's holding up well to the abuses of the weight and the partying and the the extremes of the weather. If I can picture it in my mind to blow mold something, does it kind of look like a hot tub shell being pulled or is that not, am I not quite picturing it, picturing it the right way? The best way to Compare it is uh, imagine you've got a hollow tube of plastic coming down, just coming down straight, and the molds are actually in two halves that are best compared to the molds that people might use at home to make Easter candies and Valentine's candies. Oh, sure. So they'll okay. close upon it and then uh, squeeze all that material in there. And then uh, there's water that's running through the mold. So the mold is enclosed within itself like a water jacket. So that surface of that mold, which is typically aluminum, would get cooled to about 52 degrees, which cools that plastic down over a cycle time of anywhere from two minutes to about four minutes. And that plastic comes out, gets trimmed up by someone called a machine operator, takes the excess plastic off, and then he or she trims that edge where the two mold has to come together. It's kind of like the same as that chocolate candy, whereas you get all that excess material on the outside of that chocolate candy. Before you put that on the tray to give it to the loved one, you're going to eat that excess that's on the outside. We take that excess that's on ours, except we're not, we're actually reprocessing it. We'll take that plastic, throw it in something called a grinder. So all of the scrap that we create on site goes right back through the process and is used again. We can get multiple life cycles out of it. That's fantastic. I mean, especially when you're talking right now, obviously we're talking about shortages. And so it's great that you have a way to reuse what you have and like nothing is going to waste. You're making sure that everything that comes in is going out as a product. Yep. And uh, even with doing all of that, putting it back into the product, we still can't get enough material as it is because of this Texas deep freeze. And it's ends up being one of the strangest times I've been in while I've been in business. Yeah. Well, so before we get to the freeze, I kind of want to find out, were you seeing some supply chain issues and shortages before this, before the Texas deep freeze? Obviously that is a a huge unexpected occurrence, but the pandemic in and of itself has caused a lot of supply chain stress. Were you already having a hard time getting things or what was it like before this February storm? It's it's been an incredible year. Say we go back in time to March of last year in April, where the whole world had shut down and a lot of manufacturers had gone on pause, and that would include manufacturers overseas, and especially in China. That caused some of the suppliers of material to cut back a little bit. But once people started getting back into production, like we were down for a good six weeks on most of our product line and about nine weeks on some of the others, once we got back online and all these other manufacturers did, 
we started to feel the demand that were created by the virus and created by government, where suddenly both of those working together had conspired to tell people, you know what, you better not spend your money on doing things anymore. You better spend your money on things. So that caused people to invest in the staycation economy, buy the hot tub, swimming pools, bicycles, kayaks, you name it. They're buying all Mm -hmm. these goods. And that really strained all the supply chain, whether it was plastics, metal, wood, what have you. And we saw the price of plastic, even before the Texas event, end up going to about two to two and a half times what it was at this time last year. Wow. And the increase in cost has been pretty dramatic, occurring much of it since uh, November. We're seeing the same things in steel and lumber and things like that. So all of the inputs that we might have in our product, because ultimately we've got to put our product on skids to ship it. All of those skids have doubled in price because the cost of lumber has gone up so dramatically because when it comes to the e-commerce and people wanting to ship on smaller skids, they're using that lumber up. But then also that staycation economy had caused a lot of people to want to be handymen, handy women. So they're building things at home and building new sheds and doing all this stuff. So the cost of lumber just since this period last year is uh, four times what it was. And then in recent months, steel has gone up to be two to three times what it was. So you start throwing all those into the supply chain, whether it's a plastics manufacturer like us, someone making skids, someone making steel fixtures, or say the inside framing of a hot tub that is using steel. Or you can go to even corrugated itself. When you look at Mm -hmm. all the different boxes that are now used for e-commerce, when people used to go to the store and buy just one product sitting in one box, now that product is in a double layer of boxes because Amazon's got to ship it out. So there's an incredible demand and an actual war going on for wood pulp and paper and all that stuff. And we've seen the prices on our cartons just go up 26% in the last three months alone. We got notified by our commercial printer that the cost of paper is going to go up this next month. So yeah, we are, we are feeling a little bit of that as well. When you look at how everyone is looking at traditional media, whether it's magazines or newspapers, and I'm old school, I like to hold magazines and newspapers in my hand. So consumers like me have to accept the fact that even in these changing times, when people might be looking literally at traditional media, that cost is going to go up and it's necessary because of the world that's around us. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, our industry, a lot of people are like you and they prefer the paper. So <laughs> so that bodes well for us, at least in the, at least in the interim. <laughs> You guys were already feeling a crunch and prices were already going up. And then, you know, let's let's talk through what happened in February and in Texas. No one thinks about Texas being under a deep freeze. So this ended up being a shocker and really caught them off guard. Typically, when a super weather event hits Texas, it ends up being a hurricane. Right. And when that happens, plastics processors know in advance. They shut down their facilities. They can clear out all the lines, clear out the machines, and they can start back up once everything is settled. The uh, power lines are put back up and the floodwaters are receded. So usually the downtime is minimal, somewhere from days to maybe a a week or two. Mm -hmm. But with this event, it caught the state of Texas so off guard that ERCOT, which is the independent system operator for Texas that regulates the electricity flow and reliability, they ended up not notifying people that blackouts were coming and they were anticipated to be rolling blackouts, but the system was so overwhelmed that they ended up being long-term blackouts. So what happened is rather than giving a heads up to any of the plastics resins producers, as all those companies were caught off guard and all of that process that was taking place ended up stopping right where it was. 
And then because of the inability to start back up within a few hours or a day or so, everything froze up. So that steam that was used to crack the molecules ended up just turning to water, freezing over, coating the lines. And then everything that had been going from gas to solid plugged up all the different lines. And some of these campuses that make all this material are sprawling with mm -hmm. literally miles of pipes of material getting put into silos and trucks and trains. And every one of those solidified. So they're actually using pipe fitters now to bring down the lines, push out the lines, and then also clear out the machines at the same time. And some of the machines were damaged in the process of all this happening. So all of the petrochemical suppliers went into a state of force majeure where they're calling on an act of God, saying they couldn't meet the obligations for delivery, which is well understood in this circumstance. 85% of North American high-density polyethylene production went down when that happened. And that was roundabout Valentine's Day. So here we are on March 24th, and less than half of that is now in operation. So they're hoping to get most of it in operation, I would say by the second or third week of April. They keep on pushing off the oh, dates wow. a little bit because it's just so overwhelming as they get into the nitty gritty of cleaning things up and getting things restarted. Like you said, this happened around Valentine's Day. And so these factories, they're still not up and running in working condition, at least not all of them. They're about half strength right now. And then ultimately, there's the backlog that they've got to catch up to. And we've actually had some of the resin producers tell us that they're still dealing with issues on the home front, where we saw all those homes in the news that had the busted water lines in their homes or offices that get flooded out. So they had to take care of all those issues before people could get back to work. So that's delayed it a little bit too. And it's uh, mm -hmm. an ongoing process, which is going to haunt the industry for, they say, anywhere from four to six months, if not the whole year, as they catch up with the backlog, the pricing and all that. So it, it hurts us now as a manufacturer, but it's going to end up hurting retailers and ultimately consumers over the course of the next few weeks and the next few months. And it's going to be a pretty dramatic issue. I think it's important to understand and go through the process like we did earlier, because unless you understand, and none of us do, we don't understand where all of the things that we put in our homes or we sell on our retail floors, where they come from and how they're made. And so it's good to go through that process to understand exactly why this is a huge problem. And it's not just power goes off, power comes back on, we're back up and running. I mean, these are an insane amount of work and unexpected work to get these plants back up and running again. And yeah, you mentioned even just getting people there in order to do the work is hard because, you know, when you're, when your kids don't have power and when you're, you know, your house is cold and, you know, those are the things that you, you take care of first in your life, right? Right. And they've got sizable crews there. I would say that most of those plants have employment in the hundreds. So if you end up losing a third of that team to issues at home, that's pretty significant. It's just the manual side of the labor, just mm -hmm. of taking these pipes down and pushing them out. And it's just, it's a process that I wouldn't want to undertake. No, it sounds very tedious. Do you typically have a, a fairly decent supply on site? Because I feel like this is something that, like we said, it happened in February, but we're kind of just now starting to feel the ramifications of it. So is, are people just running out of what they already had? Yeah, and uh, that's even with us hedging our bets. We added a few more silos a few years ago to overcome what might happen in hurricane season. So at any given point in time, if we had our silos totally full, we'd be sitting on about 2 million pounds of material. And a normal year, we're using about 20 million pounds of those plastic beads. And this year, had this not happened and we could have really fulfilled the staycation economy, 
we thought that we, we might be using about 25 to 26 million pounds of material. Wow. So we're holding a lot and we're also holding a lot in rail cars. But the unfortunate thing is when we're holding it in rail cars, it's not yet our material. It still belongs to the supplier. Mm-hmm. So some of the rail cars had ended up going to Syracuse, New York and Lockport, New York. And what happened was the material suppliers came back in, grabbed that material, took it out of the system and out of our orders and then repurposed it for other suppliers, which makes sense because a lot of those were food processors who need, need containers to put the food in and also medical suppliers. And given everything that's happening with COVID, whether someone wants sharps containers, they want to make uh, needles, they want to make metal equipment and tubes, that's all necessary. So I can understand them taking precedence right. over someone that's making consumer product. And that's the thing, you know, we are on the grand scheme of things, we're a small industry and we are an industry that, yeah, it's it's not essential for, for life for people like food and medical equipment is. And so it's something that it's, it's frustrating, you know, when you have customers standing in front of you in your retail store and you can't get them what they need. But I think the customer would be a lot more upset if they are standing in the grocery store and couldn't get what they needed. Yep. And adding to that of the frustration of the consumer, I'm going to say this is probably going to be a year of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I, I broke one of the cardinal rules of, uh, business multiple times over the past couple of weeks where usually you want to give news to somebody and give it in a one-page document, make it a nice, easy, quick memo. Mm-hmm. But this is so significant and coupled with everything that's happening with supply chains because of the staycation economy. I've sent out letters that are two to three pages in length to really set the table mm-hmm. so that way our customers and retailers know exactly what's happening. And unfortunately, those are the stories you're going to have to tell to the consumer because other than a few news stories here and there and this podcast and whatnot, there's been very few stories told about what's happening. We're finally seeing the national news starting to pick up on it. Wall Street Journal addressed it uh, just a few days ago. And yeah, we're starting I read to that. See that. It was fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, we will write a story. I put it out there and I'm like, okay, well, we talked about that. We can talk about something else now. And that is not the case with this. It just seems like it, it keeps going and going. And as I talked to, to OEMs, it seems like this really hasn't reached down to the, to the retailers yet. There is not a deep understanding of why lead times are still so long of why, you know, capacity hasn't picked up, you know, they just, it just doesn't quite seem to have clicked yet that this is going to be a long-term problem. And you're not going to go back to the lead times that you had in years past. And we're just going to have to adjust because there's nothing that anyone can do about it. You are making as much as you can with as much as you've got. And it goes the same for hot tub OEMs. They are making as much as they can with as much as they've got, and they can only, they can only make what they have. And the lead time thing has to be confounding for anyone that we supply products to, and then ultimately for the end consumer, because back in normal times, our lead time when it came to custom products was typically four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. Because of the staycation economy, we doubled that. And now because of what's happened in the plastics industry, and we too declaring force majeure for Mm -hmm. the first time ever, is that now we're looking at lead times of months. And and it's not unique to us and it's not unique to the rest of the world. I saw a report in the Associated Press yesterday that an individual who makes uh, educational kits for children, he gets all of his supplies from China. And typically his lead time was he could place the order, it could be into the port in California within 30 days. Now he's looking at 90 days and 90 days, according to the article, is iffy. 
And that's coming yeah. from China, which is mass producing. Things. That's the thing too. It's like, even if you have the raw materials, even if you have the people to make things as fast as possible, then you have to get them where they need to go. And that side of it is, is stressed as well. The ports are backed up. I read today that there's the Suez Canal is blocked by a ship. I mean, it's just, you know, there's, there are not enough, there are not enough trucks. There are not enough planes. There are just not enough ways to get things where they need to go at this point. And so it just is like, there are failures. I feel like an every point of the process as far as making things and sending them where they need to be. And it's not going away. And so I think for anyone who thought that, you know, the beginning of the year, we would get caught back up, we'd kind of hit our, you know, slow time of winter and the manufacturers could get revamped and get lead times back under control. It's not going to happen, people. (laughs) No, and I used to think that making spa products, just say we go back in time, six years, I used to think that the slow period was from September to December, where everyone would catch up, catch their breath, build up some inventory and just take their sweet time. But now there there is no break. It's just constant lights out. What does the shortage mean for your company? I mean, you talked about earlier that you thought that this year you would be using, you know, 25 or 26 million pounds of plastic. But what is that? What does it look like for you guys now? Say the short term to the end of the season when it comes to wool products. I've actually eliminated a lot of wool ladders and steps off of our production schedule. It would have been our best year ever. And I've literally uh, probably canceled about 10,000 ladders off my production schedule that I could have made, which is a lot of opportunity for my team. And my team is losing opportunity left and right. Typically, this time of year, we would be running voluntary Saturdays so they can pick up all that extra income to be making products. But now we've gotten rid of Saturdays because if we added Saturday production, we would quickly burn through that material. So we can't do that. And then I actually have a layoff coming up next week for about 42 people on my team. We had been at full production as best as we could. So let's say 75% production this week, but that was following what had been a two-week layoff for 40 plus people and running only a third of the machine. So we're used up all that material now, and it's going to be a constant struggle where it's going to be an actual roller coaster of layoffs from my team. And it's it's unfortunate because they've been counting on the income. We had trained a lot of new folks because of the staycation economy, and they had looked at us as being something that would be recession-proof and all of that. And here this is happening, something that's beyond anyone's control. So luckily they can call on unemployment to collect that in the meantime, but still it's a cut in pay and the lack of opportunity from the Saturday. So it's, it's a significant hit to our team and it, it makes me feel really bad about what we're losing now, what they're losing now mm-hmm. and what the future looks like going through the summer as the plastics industry gets cut up. Do you worry that some of those people will just go out and find other jobs and that you may be looking at having to rehire and retrain a a whole bunch of new people now? I worry about a a little bit of that, but they were decent with this last round of layoffs and they said they were sticking around and they said they're going to stick around Mm -hmm. for this, but it's been very difficult to ramp up during the staycation economy especially on third shift. And this is something that's haunted manufacturers throughout the whole U.S. I read about it all the time. I can easily get people on first and second, but it's that graveyard shift where it's difficult to fulfill. And that's kind of a bottleneck in itself. But with the team we have and the promise that we have for the future, once we get through this, they know that the staycation economy is here to stay for quite a while. And once it dissipates even a little bit, once the economy gets back to normal and people start going on vacation and stuff, it's that contagious aspect of staycations where those that invested now share the pictures of their hot tubs and their swimming pools and their kayaks with people. And then that next batch, once they start getting their income, can say, you know what? 
I'd like to invest in that too. So I look at the good times that the spa industry is in, that the pool industry is in, and I see Mm -hmm. these lasting for years. I do too. The more this goes on and the more that we see, I feel like it has, it's kind of raised the basement of our sales. You know, like we... I think are always going to sell more hot tubs than we did in the past. And we're not going to sell them probably at the pace that we are right now. At some point it will slow down, but I I feel like it's not going to go down to the average of before, I think is going to be much higher going forward than it, than it was. So it's very exciting from that perspective. I just feel like we all need to continue to survive these shortages and the supply issues that we're, that we're facing. We just need to make it through that. And then hopefully we're getting to a little bit of a, a smooth sailing period. Is that possible? <laughs> it might be, especially when the table was kind of set for that, where last year when we were supplying all of these spy OEMs with either cabinetry or, or steps, if we went back to that first week of March in 2020, we had multiple spa manufacturers telling us that they were on pace for their best quarter ever. And that right. was before COVID hit. And Absolutely. then once COVID hit, then it escalated. So if we get COVID out of the picture, and we go back to what was January and February of 2020. And we say, is that the new norm? Boy, that's going to be a pretty special new norm. We're going to be busy for, for eons. I feel like this has gone on so long that I almost forgot about that. <laughs> but you're right. I was, I had talked to retailers who were telling me that they had had their best January ever. You know, that's typically not a great month for spa sales and they were, they were killing it. They were doing great. And so at this point, you almost forget because, you know, that January was the best month they'd ever had. And then May was the best month they'd ever had. And then, it, but it just kept continuing. And so it was like, well, we had our best August ever. And well, then our January sales in 2021 beat our August sales of 2020. And so it just kind of keeps, it seems to keep going. And it's a good situation to be in. So even though we might say that we have problems with supply chains, delivery, things like that, it's a good problem to have because we could be on the other side and be like those in hospitality and dining where there is no business. So it's yeah. I count my blessings every single day. Yes. Are things stressful? Absolutely. Is this frustrating and difficult? Absolutely. But could it be, I mean, way, way worse? A hundred percent. And we're seeing that, you know, in our neighbors and friends and, uh, you know, colleagues all over the country. Yeah. And then going back to just the feels that I had with stress as we headed into that shutdown last spring, and I'm sure you headed to with uh, your magazine and your online presence is what does it look like on the other side? Is there going to be something on the other side? So we have never shut down for a prolonged period of any more than a week at the factory over the course of our 47, 48 years. And then when that happened, we knew it was going to be multiple weeks. We kept on thinking, is this the end of the era? And, And luckily it didn't turn out to be that way. But for so many small businesses, that is the story. I think a lot of us thought that we were, we were toast. This might be, this might be the end of the line for a lot of businesses. And fortunately, there's not been a whole lot of that going on in our, in our business, at least. So I'm curious what, you know, we talk about how this is going to impact the products that you make for the spa industry, but are there other products in our industry that are going to be impacted by this shortage? Because it's ethylene, right? That we are not able to really get right now. And that goes into a lot of stuff, right? It'll end up going into polyethylene and, and then polypropylene ultimately gets broken down in different stages. And mm-hmm. then it'll appear in, in different ways than say in the spy industry, whether you're talking about PVC pipes and things like that, they're going to be in decline, especially now after all the damage that's in Texas, how much of that inventory is getting diverted to fix plumbing in people's homes rather than putting new plumbing inside of a a new hot tub or a new piece of equipment or a filter. So all of that's going to compound the issue even more because the demand is going to be so great, but the supply is so small that it's going to appear and 
everything that's plastic. And, and it's tough to really share that because a lot of times somebody mentions plastic, they're going to think, oh, it's going to be a water bottle. It's going to be a baggie, things like that. But I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to touch their computer, to look around the room, to look at what they might be holding and saying, you know what? Everything in here is plastic. It's everywhere. I've heard about potential shortages in insulation and foam and all those kinds of things that, yeah, that are integral to building a hot tub. You know, I think people are like, well, I mean, if I got to sell a hot tub without a step, I guess that's okay. But you can't sell a hot tub without plumbing. So <laughs> correct. Yep. And then uh, all the doodads that people will come to expect. Someone can't get their mitts on plastic to make a speaker system or, or technology. At the same time, there's a microchip shortage. And then the right. same time that China's backlog, there might be a lot of bare bones hot tubs being sold over the next year because all the niceties are unavailable. Would this impact even like the, the rotomold side of the business, the those kind of the plastic hot tubs that we see, are, are they going to be impacted by this too? Because I feel like when you think of kind of a stripped down hot tub, that's what I think of. There's going to be an issue with that, but at a far lesser degree than what we're facing because some of the roto molding grade materials are made just north of the Mason-Dixon line. So they're able to weather that a little bit better. They might be in fair shape, but still once they add all those different pieces to get inside and underneath that spot, there's going to be a lot of issues. You say, you know, above the Mason-Dixon line, but the ethylene, is Texas and the Gulf Coast basically supplying the world? Is that, I mean, is that kind of it or is it coming from other places overseas as well? There's a lot overseas, but we end up servicing a lot of the world. 40% of the ethylene or the high-density polyethylene that is made in the Gulf or in Texas ends up going overseas. And a lot of times, petrochemical companies might short themselves on supplies domestically because they know that China is willing to buy the ethylene at a little bit higher price, so they get a better return on it, the U.S. manufacturer. So they're going to focus less on domestic needs for that. And that creates a, a situation. So you've got domestic players fighting right now at the same time that international players are coming in saying, I want my stuff too. So it, it's such a big, gigantic mess and it's all focused on the Gulf Coast. But the nice thing is that because of the access to natural gas from fracking and things like that, there is a plastics factory being built near Pittsburgh. that's going to be able to supply a lot of high density polyethylene. That'll be going into service late next year. And that's actually going to be winterized and have a reliable grid around there. So there's not going to be issues of hurricanes and ice storms taking anything out, they can run almost continuously. And that's going to be a godsend for the industry because it's going to give reliability. It's going to give price certainty. And then for someone like me, that's much closer to that than the Gulf mm -hmm. that cuts down on the shipping costs of the raw materials. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, if only, if only that had been up, you know, this year or last year, yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, that'll be, that'll be great. It's interesting talking about where this comes from and how it is kind of all centralized to one to one place and a place that you feel like should be pretty safe from most natural disasters. I think you and I were kind of laughing before about how you're in New York. I grew up in North Dakota. And so, you know, these these temperatures are nothing to us. You know, it's like, why? What, what's the big deal about it being, you know, zero for a couple of days? Like, let's get a grip, guys. But they're not prepared and they're not things are not built to withstand that kind of cold. And obviously from the pipes and plumbing to the power grid, it was it was just more than than it could take. Yeah, it's just the general preparation of corporations and people and just the knowledge where you and I don't mind driving in probably 10 inches to a foot of snow. 
Right. But for them, there was a real struggle to drive in just a couple of inches. And then when you look at the water pipes exploding, things like that, it's old hat to any one of us that are up north that, you know what, here's what we're going to do to winterize these pipes or drain these pipes as this is happening. But they caught people off guard who were not used to the far north coming down into their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it was just the lack of knowledge, the lack of resources, which created a huge socioeconomic issue that impacts Texas and ultimately impacts the whole world. And I think there's probably a little bit of just disbelief too. I mean, how many times has a weatherman said, hey, there's going to be this big storm coming and then it doesn't happen, you know? And so I think there's a little bit of like, really, it's going to get below freezing. Sure. Like I'll believe it when I see it. And then it actually happened. And I think there is a little bit of that, not believing the data that they were being shown. (laughs) Yeah. And then also, maybe perhaps the drama of it where uh, maybe too many times down there, they might hear polar vortex and they think it's something comical. So when it finally does hit down there, it's like, oh, this is real. It's real and it's miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is there anything else about the the supply chain or about how it's impacting your business or how you see the industry going forward that we should touch on that we haven't talked about yet? I think beyond uh, just having supplies, every single OEM and every single retailer, and then ultimately the consumer has to count on significant inflation this year. Because of all these supply issues and Mm -hmm. and the laws of supply and demand and the compounding issues, you're going to see significant inflation. So right now you're hearing some rumblings here and there from economists, maybe a little bit on Wall Street, but the uh, government had been in a little bit of denial in recent months over it, and it didn't show up very much in the consumer price index for the first couple of months, but that's because nothing is caught up yet. So as these manufacturers like myself, the steel, the wood, and the corrugated, as all the manufacturers start to pass those on to retailers, then they're going to really see it. I think that you could be looking at inflation this year to the end consumer once everything's said and done of being in the range of anywhere from four to six percent, which is awful significant because we're so used on a normal year of being anywhere from one to two percent. So you're talking multiples, even then it it might be a sustained movement. And I would hate to bring up the specter of what inflation used to look like in the late 70s, early 80s. I don't want that to happen, Mm -hmm. but there's a very real possibility that could happen to consumer goods. And it's just not growing up in farm country. I try to be uh, connected to how the farm world works around me. And when I see the prices of what farmers are now getting for corn and soybeans and beef and pork, they're going right through the roof. So that's Mm going to show up at grocery stores too. So it's going to get to the point of how much money are consumers going to have to spend on the necessities and then ultimately on the discretionary goods like a spa or a swimming pool. And it's going to, it's going to make for a really weird year, but I think everyone has to be ready for inflation because it's going to be real it's going to be significant. Also, you know, I feel like prices go up. Do they ever, do they ever come back down or once they go up, they, everyone just, they just stay there. Yeah. It's like the the price of the pump. When we see that thing go up in a hurry, it doesn't come down in a hurry. It just stays up there for quite some time. This is true. My husband works in the oil industry. And so I know that, I mean, most people, they get upset when they see the price of gas go up and I sometimes get a little excited. (laughs) (laughs) Is that terrible? I know that I know the reverberations are are bigger than, you know, what happens in our house. But when I see the price of gas go up, I'm like, oh, thank God. It's good. It's economic opportunity for you. That's right. It, it absolutely is. Well, so I we always end with the Spa Retailer 5. I sent these questions over to you. Are you ready? We try to do these as rapid yes. fire and it never ends up being rapid fire. So <laughs> do you remember what the first spa product that you sold was? Who you sold it to, what it was, who your customer was? Do you remember that? If I really go back in time to what Comfort Plastics did in the 1980s, we used to make 
spa pillows. And I believe we might have made them for maybe Leisure Bay. So we would use a, a foam-like plastic for people to rest their heads on. People wouldn't think, oh, you're going to make this out of hard plastic. But it was and a little bit different than seating foam that you see nowadays. But that's what we did. What was your first real job? Have you always been at Comfort? Did you have a, did you have a paper route? Did you flip burgers? What was your first job? In the uh, summers while I was in high school and then at college, I actually was the nature director at Camp Dipper, which is a Boy Scout camp. That's amazing. That's the first, that's the first nature director that we've, that we've had on. <laughs> it was a fun job. Do you remember or what your worst product or idea was that you tried in your business? Something that you really thought, hey, this is going to be great. And then it just, for whatever reason, flopped. The worst thing that we ever made for the spa industry, and it's something that haunts us to this day, we made this spa step called the Evolution Spa Step. The thing looked like a glorified flower planter in oh. two different tiers, almost like a wedding cake. And it was hideous and nobody wanted it. And basically the mold was a gigantic paperweight and we we scrapped it and we probably threw a party after scrapping it because we put so much money into it. It was a horrible product line. Oh no, I'm sorry. When was that? I kind of feel like the Evolution Spa Step sounds familiar. That might've been back in uh, boy, probably around 2003, 2004. Oh no, before my time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so on the flip side, what, what's one of the best things that you ever brought to the business? For me, from a personal standpoint, the way that we dealt with COVID is probably the, the one of the best because we ended up being a leader in it. I look back at when we restarted, there weren't any guidelines being issued by the state in terms of helping these other businesses because health and safety is old hat to manufacturers, but mm -hmm. for someone in an office setting or someone in a school, it's like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. So we helped the state create guidelines and they used our guidelines to be the model for everyone else within New York State. And they shared that with multiple businesses. And we appreciate that. And that's allowed us not to have any outbreaks at the plant. Every exposure that we've had amongst our 200 people have all occurred outside the factory. And we've actually stopped any outbreaks or any occurrences from happening at the plant. So we don't have that supply chain issue. That's fascinating. So can I ask you what you guys have been doing that's worked so well for you? Now I want to now I want to know how you're making that happen. The thing that we did that works out the best for us that I would encourage any employer to have done or still do if they have, I don't know where the break even point is, maybe 50 mm -hmm. employees, maybe 100, is we have someone fully dedicated to COVID. That's his sole job for his work week. And it has been ever since last May where the rules that we have, he will look those over. He will see how people are behaving in the workplace, see how they behave outside the workplace. He will manage every single test and he will be our tracer because contract tracing in New York was kind of laxed, but he's been our contract tracer to make sure that we don't have community spread or spread in the workplace. So by empowering someone to do that, that takes a lot of the weight of the world off my shoulders and yeah. allows us to focus on manufacturing and he can focus on the virus. That's interesting. Was that someone that you already had working for you and you just moved them into this new role or did you have to hire a new person who kind of had, I mean, I don't know who has a, who has a background in, in this kind of stuff. It's tough. He didn't have a health background at all. And he had been managing one of our warehouses for another customer for who we had been making kayaks and they went into their own distribution. So he would have been without a, a gig at that warehouse, but we really appreciate the way that he oversaw and managed everything. And he he's a young man, just turned 30. So we capitalize on his energy and his brilliance and his hunger to do better. Yeah. And he's been perfect for us. That's fantastic. It's interesting, you know, talking to retailers and manufacturers, the, the new positions that have come up because of everything that we're dealing with. And so for you guys, you have a COVID dedicated employee, you know, for some retailers, it's, they need to add, 
kind of some of those mid-management positions to help with logistics and ordering and, and things like that, that, that in the past, the owner would have taken care of. And now there's just, it's too much. It's worth the investment. Some people might say you're actually paying somebody full time to do that. But then when you look at what could happen if someone took ill, you would really hate to have that burden if someone got ill at the workplace and they yeah. ended up passing, they spread it to a parent that ended up passing. And then ultimately, what does an outbreak mean to your business? Mm-hmm. What's the lost economic opportunity for that? What's the lost goodwill? So by focusing on health and safety, we can make sure that everyone's safe inside these doors and outside the doors and then out in the marketplace. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, I think that all business owners feel that that stress and pressure. I mean, I think you know, you like making products, you like doing the things that you do, but it's really your people that you are working for, right? And that you're doing everything for. And the thought that you could ha- hold some responsibility for an illness or injury that they would have is just is crushing. So yeah, I think in the peace of mind alone, it would probably be well worth the investment. Yes. So what is your favorite book, TV show, podcast, where you, what do you normally do to, to keep yourself entertained and, uh, and learning and throughout all the pandemic and maybe beforehand. When it comes to my favorite book, mine's probably going to be atypical because somebody might say that this inspirational book or maybe a piece of fiction work. Mine is actually Reader's Digest Guide to North American Wildlife. That thing is my nature Bible. And I've been using that since I was probably 12. And I have multiple copies. I got one in my office, one at home, one in my truck, because I'm so big into nature that this thing is always a constant reference point for me. That is fascinating. So, okay. So I know nothing about this. Is this like, is this a guide that they would put out that they put out every year? Is it, you know, one edition that you have multiple copies of? Like, what does this look like? It's uh, one edition that's been updated a few times over the past 20, 30 years, but basically it's a whole bunch of different field guides rolled up into one. So rather than someone having a book on birds, mammals, and uh, wildflowers, it's all in one book and it's portable and it's affordable. When I look at a bookstore, it's under 20 bucks and it's a a good book to get people started. And even those that are in nature to understand the world around that. So what do you like to use it for? Are you a, are you a hiker, fisher, hunter? What are, what are the things that you like to do in nature? All of the above. And then also when it comes to uh, social media, between followers on Twitter and Facebook, I've got a lot of people that now rely on me for something I started a couple of years ago called Nature365. It's a hashtag where every day I utilize photos that I took out in the woods or out in the fields or out in the water. And then I tell a story about that plant or animal to make people better understand the world around them, to not take it for granted, maybe even the simple little caterpillar or or what they might consider to be a weed in their backyard and to understand the place that that has in the natural world. And it's good to share that, especially now, because now that COVID and government have people going outside and doing things, it's a good wake up call for people to say, hey, that's the great big world around us. And it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people in the last year have taken a lot of comfort in being outside and enjoying nature and spending more time outdoors than they ever have before, because yeah, you don't have a whole lot of other options. And so hopefully there's a lot of good habits surrounding that, that come out of this. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about the supply chain. I hope that they get these plants up and running soon and that you start getting your shipments. Thank you. I hope that happens soon. And I hope that within the coming weeks or months, I've got a lot of good news to share with customers and consumers. It's funny. I was talking to a spot OEM the other day and he said, you know, we've never made more hot tubs in the first quarter than we have this year. And we've never disappointed more customers in the first quarter than we have this year. Oh, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. Wow. Yeah. Just the bad news that you have to deliver. It's, it's, it's gotta be tough. So, so hang in there. We're, we're rooting for you. <laughs> Thank you. 
Spa Retailer Podcast is a production of Spa Retailer Magazine. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcast at sparetailer.com. Thanks for listening. I think you all remember me from the last podcast. Almost all of you might almost know my name. <laughs> right, Mama? And I know my mom is your bus. <laughs> I made some awesome designs for hot tub covers. You heard it here first, folks. Megan Kendrick, the official boss of the hot tub industry.